imagine that you are a helpless mouse making a desperate attempt to escape from a predator. The predator is approaching fast. Your heart is beating quicker. Senses heightened. Your feet scurrying as fast as they can. The predator is approaching closer and closer. And suddenly... You've escaped just in the nick of time. You start to calm down as you run to safety and ponder on your near-death experience. You evaluate the factors that had contributed to your success in avoiding being today's lunch special. You escape the mean snake this time, but what about next time? Will you be so lucky? You feel the need to develop a more sophisticated olfactory system that can help you to detect your predator and give you a head start for a great escape. You realize how important this is and the ability to develop such defenses could be crucial for your survival against hungry predators. Your parental instinct kicks in and you start worrying about the future of your offspring. Will they be able to produce such adaptations as well? Protection of precious offspring against life-threatening situations is embedded in virtually all species. You need to come up with an effective way to communicate with your offspring and somehow inform them of the potential dangers of your environments so that they too can develop effective adaptations to ensure survival. Hi and good afternoon. I'm Anise. And I'm Melissa. And welcome to our podcast, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. the mouse and its dilemma in thinking of a way of how to warn its offspring about future predator attacks and how to deal with them more efficiently. Amazingly, nature has come up with an ingenious way of passing down adaptations in a way that can propagate beyond cell division and can even persist when the stress factor is no longer present. This phenomenon is called epigenetic inheritance. You want to explain a bit more about this, Melissa? Sure. In recent years, Anise, there has been a growing public awareness about the ways in which our diets and the exposure to synthetic chemicals may impact not only our own health, but even the health of our subsequent generations, so our children and our grandchildren even. For example, it's not uncommon to shop for a reusable water bottle at the local Target and have more than half of them be marketed as BPA-free. Many people are aware that consumption of water stored in BPA-containing bottles may expose our bodies to this chemical, bisphenol A, resulting in unintended consequences to our endocrine systems. But what people don't know is that our surrounding environments can also exert influence on our health at the level of our cellular DNA as well. In fact, there is an entire field of biomedical research called epigenetics that seeks to understand how the environment, so that could be diet, maternal care in early childhood, exposure to BPA, like I mentioned, and other man-made chemicals, like our DNA, causing perpetual changes in our gene expression that may be passed down to our children and grandchildren, and even so on after that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. DNA and gene talk can get really complicated sometimes. Why don't we slow down and review a little bit so we're all on the same page? Yeah, things can get kind of confusing when you're talking about DNA and all that. So let's slow down and take a step back. Our DNA is a master blueprint that provides each of our cells the instructions to develop specific characteristics and functions. The building blocks of DNA are these small molecules called nucleotides. 
DNA is basically a long string of these nucleotide building blocks whose unique combinations make up the countless genes that ensure that some of our cells will develop into heart cells while others will develop into kidney cells. Interestingly enough, Anise, every cell in our body possesses the same exact DNA. That is, they have the same exact set of genes that make up our entire genome. So basically, this means that the vast diversity in our cell types arises from the different ways that certain genes will be used to make proteins in some cells, but not others. In other words, what gives a cell its unique set of characteristics is the way that that very cell expresses certain genes, but not others. Well, the idea that the cells in our hearts and our kidneys, two organs that are really different in function and structure, contain the same exact DNA is pretty confusing. So, Anise? Yeah? Maybe you can try explaining it in a different way that might appeal more to our more creative listeners out there. Sure. It helps to think of DNA as the instrumental sheet music that lays out all the musical notes to be played by an orchestra. This master musical score is composed of sequences of beautiful chords, and each chord is like a different gene. In this metaphor, the violinist and the pianist are like the heart cells and the kidney cells, respectively. Both the violinist and pianist have access to the same instrumental sheet of music, but they do not necessarily play every chord of the symphony. Above all is a conductor. The conductor is the master of the orchestra. In one moment, the conductor will point to the pianist, instructing them to play a specific chord. In the next moment, the conductor will point to the violinist, instructing them to play a different chord. You see, if the organs that make up our body together compromise an orchestra, our DNA is a sheet of music that provides the master instructions to which all of our cells have access to. Our epigenome is the master conductor that individually instructs each cell in our body to express the exact genes that that specific cell needs. Thus, out of the 20,000 protein coding genes that make up the human genome, our heart cells are opening up and expressing the fraction of these genes that are required for its survival as a heart cell. Meanwhile, it is closing away and silencing the other fraction of these genes that are tailored more for our kidney cells. Oh, I see. So by coordinating the set of genes that will be open versus closed, the conductor is representing basically the essence of epigenetics. Yeah, exactly, Melissa. So, going back to the BPA example and how water bottles can affect our DNA, how does the environment fit in into all of this? Yeah, so that's where things can get a little bit more complicated. It's easier to think about this connection between DNA and the environment in terms of the food we eat. So, there are certain foods that we eat, for example, beef, cheese, eggs, fish, these foods contain lots and lots of this amino acid known as methionine. Methionine is important because it's able to provide our bodies with methyl groups that can become attached to DNA itself, like little chemical tags. These chemical tags can then act as physical blockades that hide away certain genes. So think about it this way. If DNA is a master blueprint that contains this countless sets of instructions for our cells to make different proteins, methylating DNA is like applying whiteout over specific sets of these instructions, hiding them away so that they can't be read anymore. As a consequence, 
These methyl groups are like the conductor of the orchestra, who points specifically to the pianist and shouts, don't play this chord. So what is so incredible about this is that these instructions from the instructor telling the pianist not to play a certain chord, well, these changes in gene expression can be perpetuated through multiple generations. It's basically allowing a way in which environmental exposures of even our grandparents may impact our gene expression without changing the DNA code itself. What's so amazing about this, Melissa, is that the DNA of your grandchildren were never exposed to the instructions of the conductor. They didn't even know about the existence of this conductor. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So, Anise, do you want to start talking about that crazy history example? Sure. Perhaps one of the most cited examples of transgenerational impact is that of the Dutch hunger winter. Towards the end of the World War II, Nazi-occupied Holland began to dip into a massive famine as the transport of foods into cities like Amsterdam were halted amidst the cold winter. This actually led to the death of 18,000 people in the short span of one year. Wait, did you say 18,000 people? Yes, actually 18,000 people died in one year. Children that had been conceived during this famine were prone to diabetes, obesity, and even schizophrenia. What's more, these increased risks perpetuated down to the next generation of offspring as well. Although this famine occurred more than half a century ago, investigations to these hunger winter individuals found a pattern of decreased methylation levels on the genes that encoded for vital growth hormones, leading to so many trouble diseases in the generations of these individuals. Similar patterns of transgenerational inheritance of health deficits were seen in the children conceived during the Great Chinese Famine of the late 1950s also. In this case, they were at an increased rate of schizophrenia. Whoa, so it's just like what we were talking about earlier, where even though the offspring themselves were never exposed to the same conditions as their parents, they were suffering severe health deficits due to the passing down of these epigenetic patterns that were developed during the stressful events that were occurring to their parents. Yeah, exactly. Let's think about it for a minute. If parents can actually pass on all the bad stuff to their offspring, can they do the same for the good stuff? Yeah, so this is where things get really interesting because it turns out that they can. In 1999, some researchers from the United States and Germany actually published findings that suggested that parents really are able to transmit some good signals to their children. What these researchers found was pretty interesting. So they looked into these wild radish plants that when they were a little bit eaten by these caterpillars, they had this induction of higher concentrations of chemical defenses against those caterpillars later on. Which makes sense, right? Because they would want to protect themselves? Yeah, but it gets even crazier. These plants that were eaten a little bit by caterpillars started to express higher concentrations of little hairs on their leaves to also provide additional protection against caterpillars later on. But it gets even crazier. So when these researchers took the seeds from these original radish plants that were eaten partially by these caterpillars, when they took these seeds and grew out the next generation of radish plants, they found that these plants 
also had higher concentrations of these poisons against the caterpillars. And they also had more hairs on their leaves to provide more protection against these caterpillars. It's as if these parents were transmitting some kind of protection cross-generationally. So these plants were born already equipped with better defenses compared to the seedlings of plants who were never exposed to these caterpillars. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. You know what? That actually reminds me of the conversation we had last week. You know, the one about the water fleas? Oh yeah, the water fleas. They also showed a similar pattern of defense induction in the species. The researchers found that exposure to the chemicals released by their natural predators led to a doubling of the helmet size of these creatures. Wait, what do you mean by a doubling of the helmet size? So these animals have a helmet-like structure on their heads that can protect them from predator attacks. These things literally look and act like a helmet. And thus, animals that were exposed to more predator attacks develop an increase in their helmet size. Oh, so that's just like what we were talking about a second ago with the plants, right? The ones where they were able to induce more poison against these caterpillars after initially being eaten by them? Yeah, exactly. And similar to that example, the offspring of these water fleas also showed increased helmet size even before they were exposed to any types of predators. All these examples demonstrate the rapidity in which organisms are able to induce defensive tactics. Whoa, Anise, so it's almost as if these predator and prey interactions are catalyzing evolutionary biology itself by inducing the surviving prey to attain stronger, more powerful shields against their predators. These defenses are able to transmit down to their own offspring long after the initial predator-prey interaction. So thinking back to the situation in which we were imagining ourselves as a mouse that was just trying to escape from a snake attack, remember how we were trying to come up with a better way for future snake attacks? Yeah, I guess if I were the mouse in this situation, I would probably want to remember the smell of the snake and somehow be able to transmit this lesson to my children later on. You betcha! Imagine if there was a way that you could actually pass down this information epigenetically without making any changes to the DNA of your offspring. This kind of goes back to our music metaphor in which the snake incident is going to make the conductor give different directions to the violinist and the pianist without actually changing anything in the sheet of music they had. Right, so violinists may now be playing parts of the sheet music that they originally were not and pianists are no longer playing parts that they originally were. Now, linking it back to what is literally going on in the cell, these new instructions from the conductor are taking the form of methylation on the DNA. Now, this may seem like a big term, methylation. Remember how when we were talking about earlier, when we eat certain foods like beef, our methylene levels go up, allowing for more methyl groups to be added onto DNA acting like chemical tags that serve as, essentially, whiteout to block certain genes from successfully making the proteins that that cell needs. Only in this case, it's not about the types of food that we consume, but more about the predator experience that are creating these new tags. So, Anise, I have a big question for you. Yeah, what's up? So, everything we've talked about so far, whether it was a water flea example or the radish example, we're all about how these predator 
prey interactions are inducing physical changes in these animals. But is there a way for these interactions to somehow modify the behaviors of these organisms as well? Actually, there is. In recent years, researchers have been making great strides in explaining how traumatic or extraordinary experiences can leave an epigenetic memory on the DNA of their offspring. They found that when these snails were exposed to crayfish, which are their natural predators, they would have a better memory in which they would remember to enhance their breeding patterns to increase their efficiency in surviving future predator attacks. However, when the researchers gave these snails a drug that was capable of blocking DNA methylation, which is kind of like kidnapping the conductor and preventing him from giving new instructions, these crayfish were no longer able to form enhanced long-term memory following predator exposure. These findings strongly suggest that DNA methylation is necessary and essential for these snails to acquire the enhanced memory they were showing before. While we're on the topic, I actually have a close friend, Professor Watson, who is a leading scientist in her field and does a lot of work on the passing down of memory in mice. Should we try giving her a call? Sure. Hello. Hi, Professor Watson. How are you? I'm great. And you? I'm good, thanks. I was just wondering if you had a few minutes to spare. Melissa and I were just having a conversation about epigenetic modifications and memory. And since you're doing a lot of research on this topic, would you be willing to tell us a little bit more about it? I'll be glad to. I actually know of a great study relating to epigenetics and memory. The study was conducted at Emory University by Brian Diaz and Kerry Ressler. Essentially, they wanted to study how adult mice can transmit life-saving information to their offspring. They induced fear in adult mice by exposing them to acetophenone, a smell kind of resembling cherry blossoms, while simultaneously shocking their feet. Expectedly, mice trained to fear the acetophenone odor showed an increase in their fear response when exposed to this cherry blossom smell, but not to other odors. Because they were conditioned to fear that particular smell, right? Exactly, but there was so much more to these findings. They in fact found that this training had also caused structural changes in the neuronal organization of the animal's olfactory system, and cells that had been specialized to detect acetophenone had become enlarged, as did the regions of the brain to which these cells were connected to. What is even more interesting was that we found that the pups of these mice also had developed a larger brain region in the same place. So these pups also displayed a heightened sensitivity towards the acetophenone smell, just like their parents. And just to clarify, these pups were never exposed or taught to fear acetophenone, right? No, they were not. They were just born like that. What is even more striking is that the next generation, that is, the pups of these pups, also displayed similar characteristics. But how are such changes occurring, considering the second and third generations of offspring were never exposed to the fear training that their parents had experienced? The answer lies in a key gene called OLFR151. When a mouse is within the vicinity of a fox or a snake, the odorants from such predators travel through the air into the nose of the mouse. Within the mouse's nose are specialized cells that are each able to make molecular structures called receptors that stick out of the cells like antennas. Much like antennas, these receptors connect these nose cells to the outside world. When odorants emanated from predators and plants travel into the mouse's nose, they are detected by these receptors. With that being said, 
OLFR151 is the specific DNA code that provides certain cells with instructions to make a receptor that is specialized to detect acetophenone. Astonishingly, the offspring of the mice who had been trained to fear the scent of acetophenone displayed significant decreases in the methylation of their OLFR151 gene. As a result, these offspring have a version of the OLFR151 gene that is stripped of its methyl tags. In other words, the instructions to make this special acetophenone-detecting receptor is unmasked, fully exposed, and ready to be read by the cell. Yes, something like that. The receptor is now more efficient and is more sensitive due to it having less methyl tags. To our viewers out there, do you still remember our music metaphor? To put it in that context, this is as if the orchestra conductor is now pointing to the pianist and telling him to play the chords he has never played before, resulting in new sounds being produced and a new symphony being created. Essentially, the parents were transmitting their traumatic memories to their progeny through epigenetic memory of their very DNA. And in this way, both the parents and their future generations were better shielded to acutely sniff out the slightest smells of danger. That's a great way to put it. Thanks. I really appreciate you picking up the phone to explain all this. Don't mention it. We'll catch up soon. Goodbye. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This is Melissa again. And this is Denise. Alright, so we've covered a lot today. A lot of science, a lot of big terms. But you know, it's important to just go back to our original scenario in which we imagined ourselves as that mouse, successfully outrunning a hungry snake. If the snake were to have excreted a specific scent while chasing us, the ability to remember and avoid such a scent in the future could be the difference between life and death when you're in the wild. Whether it be a plant inducing chemical secretions against a caterpillar, or a mouse inducing odorant detection against a snake, the heritability of epigenetic marks has opened up a way in which experienced parents can pass down their induced defenses to their progeny. Ultimately, in an act of catalytic evolution, the game of survival of the fittest seems to have utilized epigenetics to allow prey and other means for survival. Okay guys, so thank you so much for listening to our podcast, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. We just want to say a quick thank you to Professor Deuce and all others who have helped in making this podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode, and in the meantime, happy, happy science! science!